Welcome to On Leading. I am Shauna Steffen talking with Christine Ahn. Christine Ahn is a passionate voice for peace who has focused her life's work on ending the Korean War, reuniting Korean families, and ensuring the leadership of women in the peacebuilding process. Inspired by a vision of women uniting across diverse boundaries, Christine led 30 women peacemakers from 15 countries on a walk for peace across the two-mile-wide demilitarized zone, or DMZ, from North to South Korea in 2015. Because international forces separated this ancient country over 70 years ago, the Peace Walk sought to help stitch it back together by connecting with Korean women in both North and South while crossing the heavily fortified border that keeps them and their families separated. For her historic accomplishment, Christine has been inducted into the OMB Watch Public Interest Hall of Fame and recognized as a rising peacemaker. A lifelong learner well-versed in history, Christine advocates for citizen diplomacy in response to the threat of nuclear war and reminds us that heart-based engagement is one of the most powerful tools we have for shaping the course of history. With unwavering belief in possibility, she illustrates how to bridge divides through deep understanding and faith in the potential for change. Christine Ahn, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thinking in terms of big picture of life, where do you experience joy? Hmm. I experience joy spending time with my daughter Mm. and my family. I feel um, the pressures of the work that I do and the kind of intensity, whether it's um, feeling I'm kind of going up against my government, which is the world's most powerful military economy, Mm. uh, political superpower in the world. Um, and so there comes a lot with that territory and, um, I find great joy in actually having, um, cuddles with my daughter, sometimes just, you know, turning off the computer, turning off the phone. I think the work and feeling that, um, there's not enough hours in the day to get everything I need to get done, you know, especially in these last few weeks with um, the increased brinkmanship on all sides, from North Korean side, but also from the U.S. side, and feeling that at any moment we could accidentally go into nuclear war has been just terrifying. And if I wasn't a mother, I probably would have burnt out a lot long ago. (laughs) But something about having to turn it off and focus on the human needs, I think gives me a lot of joy, and it's what kind of sustains me and keeps me going because I'm fighting not just for us now, but I'm also fighting for the future. Mm. Thank you. And I find joy in doing this peace activism as well. This work that you're doing and, and coordinating and founding Women Cross the DMZ actually started with a dream, literally. What was your dream then? And what is your vision for the world today? Well, the dream was in 2009, and I was working at the Global Fund for Women at that time, which is the world's largest women's fund, and we raise money, and we support women's groups, mostly grassroots organizing, um, in 170 countries. And at the time, I was helping to coordinate an initiative called Women Dismantling Militarism, and we 
had just screened a film called Pray the Devil Back to Hell, which is a film made by Abigail Disney about the incredible organizing by Liberian women who crossed religious lines. It was Christian and Muslim women that basically organized together and stopped a civil war. And I was so inspired by that story. And it was shortly after watching that film, I had woken up in the middle of the night and I turned on my computer, as most people with bad insomnia and workaholic habits do. And I turned on my computer and and up on the um, homepage was actually a New York Times article about flooding that was taking place on the Korean Peninsula. And it was a river called the Injun River. And this is a river that flows through the heart of the Korean Peninsula. And it was flooding. And at that time in 2009, it was Kim Jong-il, who's the father of the current leader, Kim Jong-un, and Kim Myung-bak, who was the former CEO of Hyundai, who was the president of South Korea. And Kim Myung-bak had come into the South Korean presidency with a very hard line reversing the uh, reconciliation and peace overtures that his predecessors had done called the Sunshine Policy. And so basically the hotline between North and South Korea had been cut off. There was no communication Mm. whatsoever. Allegedly, North Korea lifted the dam without contacting South Korea um, to save its arms from flooding. And the tidal wave that was sent south happened in the early morning. And I think six people were killed, including a young boy and his father who were fishing in the early morning. And I remember reading that story and just being angry, actually, thinking, why couldn't this one guy pick up the phone and call the other guy and just say, we need to lift the floodgates, we need to save our farms, otherwise people will die from the constant food shortages, so please be prepared. Um, But that didn't happen, and it just angered me. And I um, went to sleep, and that's when I had this dream of, I don't know if you've ever seen images of elderly North and South Koreans. These are siblings who haven't seen each other since they were young. And they have since been divided by the demilitarized zone and the ongoing Korean War. And it was this beautiful image of people embracing and crying and just this intense feeling. And I, um, it was so beautiful. And, and yet I, I wanted to just keep going up the river. I wanted to find out where the source of the light was coming from. And that's when I came upon the most incredible scene, which was a circle of women. And they were stirring a big black pot. And whatever they were stirring, they poured into little vessels that then became the light that flowed down the river. And it was at that moment I woke up woke up my husband and I said, oh my goodness, I know who will end the Korean War. It'll be women. Women will end the Korean War. And of course, he was dumbfounded and of course turned over and went back to sleep. But um, it really perplexed me for a long time. I really grappled with that question, well, how? Well, how will women? And so I I really, as a researcher, you know, myself, I I said, I need to find out what has been the experience of North and South Korean women to build peace, to even meet 
um, because under the national security laws of both North and South Korea, it's illegal for them to meet. And I found that the first meeting of North and South Korean women happened in 1991, and it was they were brought together by a Japanese woman. She was a member of the Japanese Diet, which is their parliament, and she had heard a call from a South Korean woman at a Northeast Asia peace and security conference where the South Korean woman said, we are facing a vicious arms race in our region, and unless the Korean conflict is resolved, it will be used to justify more militarization by all the countries in the region. And that was 1991. And I just think, oh my goodness, that was so prescient. And it's so much what we're facing today. But anyway, a a Japanese woman heard her call. And the irony of that is Japan colonized Korea in the last century for 35 years. It was a beautiful discovery. And it made me realize that not only in times of impasse do people outside of the Korean peninsula, they have a role to play. Um, It really showed to me the role that ordinary women could play. I mean, of course, this was a member of the diet. She had high-level contacts and was able to move things um, at a scale that, you know, most grassroots women couldn't do. But the meeting and who was brought together, these were grassroots women. I was really inspired and emboldened by that. And it helped me realize that in times of impasse, and we have seen times of impasse between North and South Korea for the last eight years, we have a role and a responsibility to play. So in 2013, I caught wind of a little noticed article about five New Zealanders who rode their motorbikes across the demilitarized zone from north to south. If they can do that, women calling for peace can certainly do it. And so that's basically the evolution of how the idea for the Women's Peace Walk came about that we did in 2015 Um, 30 women peacemakers from North to South Korea calling for peace, calling for an end to the Korean War, calling for family reunion, and calling for women to be involved at all levels of the peace-building process. And you made history two years ago through your leadership coordinating those 30 women peacemakers from 15 countries to cross that two-mile-wide demilitarized zone and to travel from North to South And Gloria Steinem, I saw that she had said, and she being one of your marchers, that, quote, we have accomplished what no one said can be done, which is to be a trip for peace, for reconciliation, for human rights, and a trip to which both governments agreed. Truly historic. And so going from that dreamscape to that historic reality, Can you share a little bit about what it took to accomplish what others said couldn't be done? It was an extraordinary thing to witness and to be a part of. You know, it took incredible savviness to get across the DMZ. I mean, you're dealing with North Korea. You're dealing with South Korea, which has been a very hardline government as well, too. And you're dealing with the United States. And the DMZ is also called No Man's Land. And, you know, in many ways it is. I mean, we we had to navigate all these military political waters 
and it was such a feat. It was, um, I mean, not only were we planning a major peace walk with thousands of Korean women on both sides, we were trying to organize a peace symposium. And so if you can imagine, we're dealing with um, 30 women from 15 countries and you know, we didn't even know up until the very last minute whether we could get approval from South Korea to cross the demilitarized zone. The coordinating and the organizing of this took incredible work, but I would say it was it was the most difficult thing I've ever done, and it was thrilling. It was thrilling to be able to be a group of women and united together, and certainly we had Nobel Peace Laureates and really prominent women, but we had you know, really grassroots women. So we just had the whole range of women and whether it was people that had some contacts at the highest level, um, you know, the deputy secretary general of the UN to um, somebody knows so-and-so, it just took incredible coordination and willingness to use every resource to make this happen. And and I I look back at... um, the range of political views and, you know, women's movements are not all smooth and everybody gets along, but it was an extraordinary process. And I think it was extraordinary because of not only what we accomplished, but just the process and and just to see how the diversity of women's political views still were able to come together so that we were able to unite and, uh, and do this historic action. And as Gloria said, we were able to get the government to agree on something that they had not been able to do for so long. It's so extraordinary that you accomplished what you did as we think about what's happening, especially today, and that you are also a grassroots woman from the United States who literally followed the guidance of a dream to do what had never been done. I wonder what has this journey taught you that you'd like others to benefit from? I think um, being really resilient and persistent and believing that if you can really put your heart and your mind to something, that even if you can't accomplish what you want your goal to be in this lifetime, that you will have, like, I, it's not like I'm, I'm, just, I'm just walking in the footsteps of the giants before me, you know, um, the ordinary people before me. And um, so I, I'm going to do what I can to try to advance a peace process that, you know, has been tried for seven decades. And... We have to come to our senses and realize that we don't want to have mutual destruction. And so women have to step up because there is an entire, you know, there tends to be this group think. There tends to be this, um, oh, well, they did this. And so, you know, and what we're saying is stop, stop all that. It has led us nowhere. This is this militaristic game that has just led us towards this path of mutual um, self-destruction. And we don't want to do that. We want to have a different kind of world where conflict is not resolved militarily. We want it to be solved diplomatically, people to people, citizen diplomacy. Let's deal with the issues of the heart. That's 
what we're calling for. You just took a significant action together with female activists from and, and women, women's leadership from more than 40 countries, including North and South Korea, made news by urging President Trump to defuse the military tensions and start negotiating for peace. This was reported in the New York Times. And you said that, quote, we are united by our belief that diplomacy is the only way to resolve the nuclear crisis and threat of war now facing the Korean Peninsula, urging that, quote, peace is the most powerful deterrent of all. What do you think, Christine, that it will take to bring out the best of our diverse humanity to ensure this sustainable future you envision of peace? What will it take? I think it'll take commitment. I think it'll take what it has always taken to achieve some kind of diplomatic deal, whether it was Iran or Cuba. It's just going to take persistence. It's going to take, you know, a core group of dedicated individuals and organizations that are really going to believe that that is true, that a diplomatic solution is the only way to deal with this nuclear crisis. And we're just going to have to keep building. I just, I realize that we have to get out of our silos and we have to be uh, willing and asking people for help. And, and then, of course, what Women Cross GMZ did, you know, to try to mobilize women peacemakers from all around the world and, and calling for solidarity and help um, and just getting an overwhelming response, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, you know, I think the formula exists. And we know from the successes of, you know, grassroots women, whether it's from Northern Ireland to Liberia to Colombia um, to the Philippines, you know, that people power when they organize and put pressure on political leaders that we can actually see through something. And so we cannot continue as we have. And um, this is the most dangerous um, foreign policy issue that's facing the United States. And so we have to think um, outside of what has been the conventional path. And it's going to take people outside of the traditional spheres of of influence. From your perspective, what is the relationship between peace and sustainability? Oh, such a good question. I feel that um, the work as a peace activist is critically about trying to um, reinvest into things that will create peace, whether it's ensuring that people have enough food to eat, that we have clean air, that we have clean water, that we have clean soil that isn't contaminated by GMOs and pesticides that just leach into the water systems and that harm the people that are growing our food. And that people, when people rise up, we can change the course of our country and our world what would you say is distinct or unique about the leadership that's needed at this time in our planet's history? Oh, I would say that there, the kind of leadership is a, a boldness. It's a leadership that recognizes the kind of intersectionality of how all these um, crises impact us all 
Um, it's a leadership that is willing to get out of the silos that we are um, traditionally working in. And I think it's, it's, um, it's a willingness to believe that people can change. Mm. And, you know, I think that that's maybe what distinguishes me. I think that there is a deep cynicism and an unwillingness at all to engage with the Trump administration. But, and trust me, on most days I, I wonder if I'm being completely naive here. But if I can't believe that I can influence some people, then I, I don't know. Am I just waiting for the next administration to come into power? I just think we don't have that kind of time. And so if I'm, I, I'm going to use everything, use my brain, use my heart to try to appeal to people's decency and humanity. And so I don't know. I'm, I'm all in. And hmm. if I can convince somebody in the National Security Council that actually we have to understand the North Korean mindset, which has a certain unique history that is tied to what we did in the Korean War and what we did as the United States to divide the Korean Peninsula and what we did to basically install a military government in South Korea and what we have done to kind of maintain a clientelistic relationship with South Korea. Like if I'm willing, I'm willing to speak the truth to people in those positions of power and they may be completely hell bent on just maintaining the U.S. hegemonic power in the region that just benefits corporations and you know, defense contractors. And that could be the case. But if I don't try, I don't know, I, I think I have to try and I have to believe that I can reach people's hearts. Um, so I'm going to do it. Thank you. Thank you for joining this conversation on leading. I am Shauna Steffen talking with Christine Ahn of Women Cross the DMZ. To learn more about how to engage in peacemaking, go to womencrossdmz.org. And to learn more about restorative leadership in action, go to restorativeleadership.org or subscribe on iTunes.